Please now stand for the reading of God's word. For those of you who are visiting today, we are in the midst, in the middle of a series on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul using the book of Acts as a template. But in addition to doing that, um, as we come to a place in the book of Acts or Paul's various missionary journeys where he writes letters to the churches that he has planted, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts and jump into some of those letters to explain the basis of the letter, the reason that he wrote it, some of the themes that are covered. And so we find ourselves in the book of Acts 19 and 20. That's where we are. And when Paul leaves Corinth and goes to Ephesus, and he spends three years in Ephesus, it's in Ephesus that he writes back to the church at Corinth. So that's the logic of where we are today. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we're going to look at the end of chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, you may have seen this past week that we've had our, our second private company, Achieve spaceflight. Jeff Bezos and his team 
were able to achieve space flight for, I think, over 10 minutes. In order to qualify as achieving space flight, I think you have to reach an altitude of over 40 miles, which seems like a really long way up in the air and would make me quite nervous. Um, unfortunately for Bezos, apparently the FAA, if you saw articles, tightened their rules for what qualifies as being an astronaut. And they've kind of deprived him of that title because in order to be considered an astronaut, part of your mission has to involve research or things like that, which his really didn't do. So maybe he can do that next time. Um, true astronauts are a very rare breed. And they started back with the Mercury program back in 1959. The word astronaut literally means star sailor. A number of months ago, a member here said, David, what are you reading? I was in between books. And he says, I have just the book for you. And it's called The Right Stuff by Thomas Wolfe. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. Absolutely outstanding. And it's the story of how America developed the astronaut program, how we found, recruited, developed the very first astronauts. And they were only looking for men who had just the right stuff. Okay, and so they sought out fighter pilots, the best of the best of the best of the best. You cannot imagine what these fighter pilots were willing to do and the things that they were um, engaged in. It was, it was just incredible. Like the stories just about Chuck Yeager alone are worth picking up this book and giving it a read. But they were concerned initially the folks from NASA and the recruiters were very concerned whether or not they were going to get these fighter pilots to actually agree to volunteer to be a part of this program because there were programs like this that popped up from time to time that would ultimately fizzle out. And so lots of pilots could be concerned that to become an astronaut, like today that's a term of reverence and honor back then, it was a very speculative thing. They were concerned that if they did this, and if it didn't pan out, that their careers could be over. In fact, I'll just read a little bit from the book because I know you're already wanting to pick it up. Thomas Wolfe writes, Every test pilot knew that many of these great ideas never left the test stage. And in the history of flight, these well-meaning farces took place all the time. And where would you be then? You would be three years off the line and behind in terms of jockeying for promotion. You would be giving up whatever brownie points you had built up over the past four or five years. And yet, and yet, 56 of the 69 men they had identified to be potential astronauts, 56 of 69 volunteered, and they were baffled. And they didn't understand why these men would risk their careers for the good of the group, the good of the nation. He writes, somehow in that briefing room, in the very inner parts of the Pentagon, the recruiters in their dialogue with these test pilots, they had hit every button just right. It was as if they possessed a blueprint of the way that the fighter jock was wired, what made him tick. They used phrases like, quote, this is in the highest national security. It is, quote, hazardous undertaking. Quote, it's strictly volunteer. 
quote, so hazardous that if you don't volunteer, it will not be held against you. They were be, being presented with the Cold War version of the dangerous mission. In other words, totally irresistible to a fighter pilot, okay? Like me, I'm out, okay? I'm done. These guys, they're in. He writes, you see, within the souls of the fighter jocks was triggered a motivation that overrode all strictly logical career considerations. I must not, I must not get left behind. I need to be a part of this. And so they risked everything, like literally, risked their lives to fly in this tin can for the part or for um, the role of being part of something greater, something much bigger than they were. They had to set aside their personal ambitions for a greater cause. And in a sense, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling the Corinthians to do this morning. He's calling them to set aside their selfish ambitions, many of their personal ambitions, set those aside for the greater good of the group, the group they were a part of the church. And we're going to see how he does this. You know, it was interesting how the Pentagon motivated those fighter jocks. Let's see how the Apostle Paul motivates and encourages the Corinthians to set aside personal ambition for the sake of the church. It's very interesting. Okay, the historical situation. Last week we learned or saw that shortly after the Apostle Paul planted this church at Corinth, the Corinthians began to operate according to the principles of secular culture in Greece. Namely, they were identifying with, associating themselves, connecting themselves to church leaders that they felt had great prominence. People like Paul, Apollos, and Peter. And by associating themselves with these particular leaders, they were creating factions cliques and divisions in the church like Paul indicated that some people said I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas in other words I'm a part of a better group than you are and it created strife and division and as soon as people associated with one group they began to look down on people from another group okay and so Paul's way of dealing with this was to humble them okay by bringing them back down to earth by showing them that the things they valued the world viewed to be foolish Okay, and the way to lift yourself up is actually to lower yourself, identify, identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and his humility. So that was his approach then. The root issue is the same. The, I guess the most concerning root issue at the church in Corinth was the sin of pride. And the sin of pride was expressing itself in all kinds of ways. With, you know, from group factions to not associating with each other during the Lord's Supper, to hear how they were expressing their spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit had given them. Okay? Um, that's the root sin. Not pride in particular people, not pride in these groups, but pride in their spiritual gifts. Okay, we read in another of Paul's letters that when Christ won the victory among the many benefits in addition to salvation that the Lord Jesus gave to his church, he gave gifts to his church. And those gifts come in the form of people like apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, 
They're people and their individual gifts that are given to the church at large. Okay, so when Jesus won the battle and he gives salvation, he also gives gifts. People and then individual gifts that are meted out by the Holy Spirit at large. Well, of course, you know, and we're not dissimilar from the Corinthians. They took wonderful things, gracious things, okay, and because of their pride, they used them as weapons, as a way to build themselves up at other people's expenses. And so in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul is trying to disabuse them of the ways they are pridefully manifesting these gifts, and he wants them to use their gifts in a spirit of love to help the church. That's what's going on here. Okay, the Corinthians were very proud of their gifts. Okay, um, there were a number of gifts in Corinth that were hyped, and those are the gifts that you wanted, and if you had those gifts, you felt great about yourself, and you looked down on people that you perceived had lesser gifts. Let's see how this works itself out in the text. Chapter 12, verse 27 through 31. Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. So these are gifts the Lord is giving to his church in the form of people here. Now God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, before we consider, um, think about, talk about some of these um, miraculous gifts, like the gifts of miracles, the gifts of healing, or apostles, or prophets. Before we think about those kinds of things, let's, let's consider verse 31, because on the surface it seems that Paul is undermining his own argument when he encourages the Corinthians, these competitive, prideful people, to earnestly seek out the higher gifts. So if the problem in context is an overly competitive spirit, where certain gifts were hyped and people would take pride in these gifts and look down on people with lesser gifts, wouldn't you think the antidote and response should be, be content with the gifts that you have? Don't look down on other people with what you perceive to be lesser gifts. That's not what Paul does. He says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. That seems counterintuitive to me. Why would he encourage them in this way? Well, we'll find out ultimately. The higher gifts weren't necessarily the more spectacular gifts. The higher gifts are the gifts that benefit everyone. Okay, that's why later he, he prioritizes and places a great emphasis on the gift of prophecy. Because the gift of prophecy was a gift that could benefit everyone. Think of prophecy in the same way today that we would think about the scripture reading. What prophecy was for them the Bible is for us. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have all of Paul's letters. They didn't have 1 John and 2 John and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and the book of Revelation and Hebrews, and they didn't have the Gospels. 
So they were living in this tweener period. They were living in a period of time where they were highly dependent on prophetic words to tell them what the will of God was and their life and their community and things like that. The gift of prophecy was essential. It was a gift that benefited everyone. Okay. So that's what he's wanting them to do is to, is to seek after, pray for the higher gifts or higher gifts as he defines gifts. Gifts that benefit everyone are the higher gifts. Okay, the elephant in the room, when you tackle this text, the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and all the way through 14, the elephant in the room is, what do we do with these kinds of gifts? Because not only are, are many of these gifts not being hyped, right? What's the problem in our context? You don't even hear about them. Okay, like in the context of first century Corinth, what was going on if you read farther in the book is like people were using their gift of tongues. Lots of people were speaking in tongues at the same time. It was chaotic. People didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know how to interpret, you know, we don't have that issue today. Why is that? Not everybody speaks in tongues. What's the, it's the opposite. No one speaks in tongues, okay? Paul mentions the gift of miracles. How many of you have seen a miracle? He talks about the gift of healing. How many of you have seen the gift of healing? He talks about tongues. How many of you have witnessed the gift of tongues? He's regulating how gifts are used in Corinth. How does your session regulate the gift of tongues here? We don't have tongues here. What in the world are we to make of this? Ultimately, what Paul is wanting them to do, he's wanting them to utilize the higher gifts, the gifts that bless everyone, but he wants the love of Jesus Christ to give shape and form and to frame the way they use these gifts. But before we get to that in verse Four of First Corinthians 13, just a brief word about what do we do about these, what, what some people might refer to as the charismatic gifts, these gifts, these supernatural gifts. You know, why don't we see these in operation today? Is it that we don't have enough faith? If we had more faith, would we see them today? If we weren't part of the frozen chosen, is it because we're the frozen chosen that we don't see these gifts today? If someone asked you over lunch, why don't we see these today? And it's not just at Providence Presbyterian Church. You know, if you went to other wonderful churches around in the city of Dallas, the vast majority of Jesus-loving, Christ-honoring, gospel-preaching churches, you would not see many of the gifts that he mentioned here um, being utilized. How are we to understand this? If your child said, why don't we do that, mommy or daddy, what would you say? Now, not everybody may agree to this, but within our tradition, here's how we understand it. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Take a sip of your coffee just very briefly. Here's how we understand it. There's a great analogy in the Old Testament, a phenomenal analogy. We would use the analogy of manna. Okay, when the people of God had been delivered from Pharaoh's oppressive hand and were on their way to the promised land, they ended up spending 40 years in one of the most desolate areas of the entire world. There was no food, very little water, outside of some extraordinary miracles. Those people were dead within days, but they didn't die. Why didn't they die? 
What did the Lord supply to the people of God while they were in the wilderness? God gave them manna, this heavenly bread. Okay, there was an extraordinary need 40 years in the desert, and so God provided in extraordinary ways. What happened the moment the people of God set their foot across River Jordan? The manna stopped. Why did the manna stop? The manna stopped because now they're in Canaan, they're in the promised land, the needs were going to be ordinary, and so God was going to supply their needs through secondary means in more ordinary ways. So manna, it was an extraordinary provision for an extraordinary need, okay? That's a great analogy for how we view a number of these spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in Corinth that we don't see operative today. It's not because we're the frozen chosen. It's not because we don't have faith that will move mountains. It's because those were temporary in nature. Okay, if I was to ask you, um, do you think there are apostles today? Apostles with like a capital A. Apostles like Peter and John and ultimately Paul. Would you, would you indicate that there are apostles today? 99% of the Jesus-loving church would say apostles no longer um, are operative today. They were a provisional gift of the Lord to care for his people as the foundation of the church was being built. And when that generation of apostles passed away, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection there were certain qualifications to be an apostle. When that generation died away, there's no more apostles. Okay? Not everyone may agree with this. But within our tradition, the best scholarly theological minds see that especially in the book of Ephesians, that like apostles and prophets, those are two offices or gifts that are linked. And so the argument would go, Apostles were temporary. Prophets were temporary. There were certain gifts that were connected with those offices. And when those offices ceased, some of those particular gifts ceased. And they ceased at a time that coincided with the people of God having his word. 27 books of the Bible available to them to teach them and instruct them and guide them. And so the role that tongues played the roles that prophecy played, okay? Instructing a people that, that didn't know and understand all the glories of the new covenant are now accessible through his word. That's the argument. That's the logic. That's how we understand how some of the gifts that are mentioned in Corinth, okay, aren't operative today. But there are gifts that are operative today. The Lord has gifted his church with people, with pastors and teachers and evangelists and elders and all kinds of things and there are still many gifts at large that all of you and I enjoy together that's the core of this that's what transfers to today so many gifts that are operative in this body and the million dollar question for us is how are we using them are we using the gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ died and was raised to give us. Are we using them? Are we using them kind of for Christians in general? 
And even more convictingly, are we using them here? Paul wants the Corinthians not to just love Christians in general. Of course he does. He wants them to love each other in their context. How are we at Providence Presbyterian Church utilizing our gifts, teaching, wisdom, hospitality, finances, you name it, how are we specifically employing them here for the benefit of other people? Let's look at our text here. Okay, chapter 13, verse 1. Paul's going to speak in hyperbole, you know, the, the gifts that were hyped. Tongues were hyped there. And without, I, I have it in my notes. I don't think we have time. Um, we can talk about it after, afterwards. I think there's great evidence in the New Testament. Tongues were known languages. They were not ecstatic speech that was unknowable. Tongues were known language. You go to Acts chapter 2, it seems very clear that tongues were known languages. And gifts of interpretation, you could interpret a known language or a known dialect. Um, Anyway, chapter 13, verse 1, Paul's speaking hyperbolically here. He's not saying that there's really a tongue of angels that people could speak if they were given that gift. He's speaking in hyperbole here. He writes, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. In other words, if I was able to do something that, that, that the people of God thought was incredible and grandiose and spectacular and impressive, but if it's not driven by love, if it's not driven by a goal of caring for the people here, it's of no value to me whatsoever. I don't care how great the gift is. He writes in verse 2, you know, and the argument's going to stay along the same lines. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, you know, like the, just a penetrating insight of the Old Testament and how it relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that applies today. He's saying if I am the best exegete, if I'm the best interpreter of God's word in the history of interpretation, if I have all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. It's of no benefit at all. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, if I give the ultimate sacrifice, pay the ultimate price, die for the gospel, Okay, if it's for selfish reasons, if it's not born out of love for you, it has no value. In other words, if you're, I would say in our context, if you're hoarding your gifts, that's just as bad as using them for selfish reasons. If you're hoarding your gifts, if you're not using your gifts for the benefit of other people, then this should be convicting. It's very convicting for me. I promise you of that. I mean, um, I fall so short in almost every description that Paul gives here. Tremendously convicting for your preacher. You know, again, what, what the Corinthians have done, what we have done, or what we do, is we take the gifts of God, the wonderful gifts that the Lord gives to us and because of our sin nature we hoard them and we're miserly with them and we keep them to ourselves for a variety of reasons and we're slow oftentimes to share these gifts with other people certainly not when it's inconvenient but Paul commends a better way a more excellent way okay there should be a 
a more powerful motivator than even the Pentagon found for these fighter jocks. There's a, there's a more powerful motivator at work that would impel us, compel us to use our gifts here in appropriate ways, and it's love, the love of Jesus Christ, the love that we've received, the love that we enjoy, the love that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, pours out in us is what we should use and should compel us to love other people. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4, one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this. If this is not convicting to you, I don't know what is. It's hard for me to even read this and not feel like the biggest hypocrite. Love is patient. Love is, love is slow to become angry or irritated with people. Extremely convicting to me. Love is patient and love is kind. It is gentle and it is gracious with people, especially the Lord's people. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love is not threatened by other people's success. Love loves it when the Lord's people do well and thrive and grow. Love does not see other people as inconveniences to us. Love does not insist on its own way. You know, it's not selfish. It is not irritable or resentful. It's like Paul had me in mind, okay? It's like David Ray comes up on the radar. Maybe in his prophetic prowess, he was seeing my face. Because so often in my life, I'm not doing this. I'm not operating according to this paradigm. He says it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love, it rejoices with the truth. He writes, love bears all things. It bears with people. It shows patience with people. It's, it shows forbearance with people. People can be difficult, right? You're difficult. I'm difficult. We're all difficult. It's good for our sanctification to bear with people and be patient with people. Verse 7, love bears all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. What does that mean? Does that mean that when, you know, just if someone with questionable character came up with some cockamamie story that you're just supposed to believe it and supposed to live gullible? No, it believes all things and hopes all things in the sense that we always believe and always hope that the Holy Spirit can change people and change situations, okay? That we don't live fatalistically. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful and can change the hearts of people in situations and can change our hearts. We can grow. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things because this is what Jesus did. He bore up under all things, endured all things, was incredibly patient in every situation. For us, for people like us, can you believe it? People like us. I can't believe that he did this for me. And then he makes a, another comparison here. He's basically going to say these things that, 
you take such pride in, they are so temporary. They're fleeting. They're ephemeral. They're only a part of this age. They are not part of the age to come. And they were gifts. Okay, they're not just intrinsically part of who you are. They're gifts. Paul says earlier in Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? These things are temporary. And their temporary role is to build up the church. Thankfully, in glory, one day we will know as fully as we are known. But now we need these gifts and we need each other. He writes in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. It never ends. That's eternal. So if you want to focus on what matters, what's significant, the foundation, focus on the love of God in Christ Jesus. That will never end. As for prophecies, he writes, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that's highly debated, it's probably Jesus coming in to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, the eschaton, glory. But when the perfect comes, when full knowledge comes in a sense, the partial is going to pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. In other words, that's what you're doing, Corinthians. That's what we do at Providence. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Mirrors in the first century weren't like mirrors today. You didn't see your face with crystal clear clarity. It was very opaque. You couldn't see it fully. Okay, he's saying one day we'll have a mirror. Okay, we'll see clearly. That's the point. It comes from like, like incomplete knowledge to ultimately one day full knowledge. And the greatest part about that is the knowledge we'll have of the Lord Jesus. Seeing him, knowing him face to face. Knowing him, being known by him. Can you imagine? That's what we were made for. To know him and to be known by him in the most intimate, relational, and complete of ways. He relates to us on the basis of love and sacrifice and patience and endurance. He used the gifts that he gave, his body, his very life, and he gave them, gave it up for us. So friends, how are we doing here? How are we using our gifts at Providence Presbyterian Church, not just for Christianity in general, that's a good thing, but it needs to start here. We're a microcosm of the church at large. Your personality, your background, your wisdom, your life experience, I can promise you this, we need it. We need each other. The more we learn from each other, the more we're built up by each other, the mo more we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest blessing of all. Paul concludes in verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen and amen. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this timely reminder. We thank you for this incredibly convicting text, Lord, that we all fall woefully short of, of perfectly and fully embodying in our life. I am the chief of sinners in this, Lord Jesus. I pray that by your spirit you would change me. Give me patience and endurance and forbearance.
Father, help me to be uh, better and more gifted and more equipped to love your people. Father, do that not only for me, do it for everyone here. Lord, we pray that the love of God in Christ Jesus would mark our interactions with one another at Providence Presbyterian Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.